I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Hey everybody, we are back with the first episode of season three of the Multilingual Mamas podcast, and we are launching season three with the wonderful Julia Pittman, an associate professor of German at Auburn University, editor of the book Raising Children Bilingually in the U.S., and a trilingual mama and strong advocate of raising children bilingually in the U.S., or anywhere for that matter. And so Julia, thank you for joining us today, and and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so start off just telling us a little bit about yourself and, and your personal language background. Uh, what languages did you speak growing up and uh, when and how did you learn uh, other languages that you speak? Sure. I grew up in Cluj-Napoca, Romania, in a bilingual family with a Hungarian mom and a Romanian dad. And I uh, because uh, Cluj is located in Transylvania, which is the northwestern part of Romania, which belonged to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, in Romania, the majority language and official language is Romanian, but there is a significant Hungarian minority, and from the Austro-Hungarian uh, background, also a German influence. In addition to speaking Hungarian and Romanian at home, I actually attended a German preschool and German school. So the language of instruction was German. And so my childhood would be characterized by trilingualism. Now in uh, fourth or fifth grade, I started with English as a foreign language. Mm -hmm. And in sixth grade, French as a foreign language. Wow. And moving forward with more languages, um, in college, I uh, studied German and English as my major, was uh, translation and interpreting. Mm -hmm. And I also took one year of Spanish in college. And then after graduating from college, I, uh, I worked as a certified translator and interpreter. And I noticed there was an increasing demand for Dutch. And so I took it upon myself to also learn Dutch. And uh, I passed an exam with the Ministry of Justice in Romania and be I became actually was for a while the only uh, certified translator for Dutch in Transylvania, which was pretty neat. Um, and so I used that also as a language, relying heavily on dictionaries. I do have to say that. <laughs> um, this is so incredible. There's such different languages, too, right? Like you have Germanic languages, uh, Romanian is a Romance language, right? Correct. And then Hungarian is... Slavic? Correct me. No, uh, Hungarian is a non-Indo-European language, oh, wow. part of the Finno-Ugric. So even more different, actually, yes, than if yes. it were Slavic. Okay, okay. Completely different. Yes. Yeah. Yulia, may I ask, where do you where do you do your undergrad? Was that still in Romania or in Romania? Yes, okay. I studied in Cluj. I did my undergrad in translation interpreting, and also I also got my master's in Romania at the same university. Uh, and it was also translation, science, and terminology. Uh, wow. We ended up translating the legislation for Romania to join the EU that pertained to oh, agriculture wow. and environment. Um, so a neat work for sure. My goodness, we have a superstar in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Hi. So sorry to interrupt. No, you learned Dutch? Um, after Dutch, uh, so I worked for a while in Romania, but then I moved to the U.S. In the year 2000 to start my PhD, 
-hmm. in linguistics at the University of Georgia. And I, uh, while doing my PhD studies, I taught German as a TA. And one summer for fun, I audited an Italian class. And because of my background, my being a native speaker of Romanian, teaching a foreign language at the college level, having an understanding of linguistics and a few other languages, I enrolled straight into third semester Italian. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this as, you know, from a point of arrogance or anything, but it was not very challenging. It was a, a good level for me. Mm -hmm. So limited knowledge of Italian. And then I was thinking about this in preparation for today's interview. My children have been attending a school with, that uses classical curriculum, and they do a lot of Latin. I took one year of Latin in eighth grade. I remember maybe a few phrases. But over the last few years, working with my children, just helping them with homework, I would say I have not an insignificant understanding and knowledge of Latin. Um, and so I was thinking to make the distinction for our listeners between all these languages, because if someone asks me what languages do you speak, I really will not throw them all in one pot. Right. And uh, you may be familiar, maybe our listeners are or are not with Larissa Aronin's dominant language constellation uh, term. My active languages are Romanian, Hungarian, German, and English. Okay. But then moving out of that circle, part of my language repertoire, I would include all the other languages with varying level of proficiency. Right. So that would be my answer to this first question. Wonderful. I do. I do want to ask a quick follow up question. So do you on a day to day basis normally use these four languages that you highlighted? Romanian, Hungarian, English and German. Would that Pretty be the much. OK, perfect. German during the summer, if I don't teach or I took students to Vienna one summer, obviously there was a lot of German. So if there's no work need for German summers can go by with a little German. Right. But so, normally on a daily basis, yes. More or less, yeah. So <laughs> take us through how <laughs> your multilingualism translates into your household, right? Because you probably are married and have children. Tell us a little bit more what languages you guys use to communicate within each other at home, outside the house, with other family members in the U.S. or outside the U.S.? Absolutely. So I'm married to an American who people say not a typical American. He speaks several languages. When we met, he knew already French and was learning German. And then while being married to me, he learned Romanian also. So he speaks four languages. Wow. And we have three children. Our oldest is 14, a girl. Then we have our second one, a boy, he's 12. And the third one, 10, also a boy. And my husband speaks English to them and I speak Hungarian to them. And what language do you use to communicate with your, your partner? So we speak English to each other. Okay. Uh, sometimes, oftentimes on the phone or uh, maybe in certain situation, we may speak Romanian to each other. Okay. Would that be as a secret language or to discuss things that you don't want the kids to know potentially? Maybe. And sometimes it's not driven by that. Sometimes it's just, uh, we just switched to Romanian and it took a while. He was, 
he, he likes languages and he, especially while he was learning, he would have really wanted for me to speak a lot of Romanian with him. And you may know this, sometimes you have a certain language connection with a person and then using a different language comes across, it feels very artificial. So it took me a while to be able to speak Romanian with him and for that to feel natural. But we do that. It's, it's sometimes we just switch to Romanian. I'm so glad you mentioned that because Alex and I are going through that. We're currently in France and I'm trying to ask him to talk to me in French. So my French picks up a little bit more because I understand a lot by living with French speaking people at home, but my speaking is not good. And he just keeps saying that it's just so weird. I can't switch to French. Like we just have this English communication and it's just really, really weird for him. But I wanted to point out that it's really it's really impressive and exciting to have a partner that wanted to, to learn Romanian. Like, that's not an easy language. And the fact that that came out of him, I'm surprised. Why did he choose Romanian instead of Hungarian? If that's the language you, you use with your children? Um, so why did he learn Romanian? Or, mm -hmm. yes. Oh, okay. okay. Because my parents, so my, my uh, mom, uh, was fluent in Hungarian and Romanian. By that, my dad didn't speak any Hungarian. So he, mm. his really his desire for learning, uh, one of my languages was to be able to communicate with my parents and Romanian was the language that he was able to use with both of them. And that was also convenient because he already knew some French. And so this was another Romance language. It was easier for him to learn Romanian than it would have been Hungarian. Children not speak to your father? Very little. So that was also a choice I had to make. And we're fortunate when we have options, right? Like it, it is a little stressful. Oh my goodness, which one am I gonna pick? And I would like for them to learn all these languages, but we do have to choose. And I, my choice in uh, speaking Hungarian to my children was uh, twofold. There was an emotional reason and a rational reason for it. My emotional was it, it is the language closer to my heart. It's the language I grew up speaking to my mother mm -hmm. and it feels more natural, even though Romanian is really to this day my dominant language. But then as a linguist, I also knew how much more difficult Hungarian was. And I thought to myself, if I speak Hungarian to them, they could add Romanian later in life. But if I spoke Romanian to them, and if I ever wanted them to know any Hungarian, uh, that would be very improbable. Wow. So you went for the hardest. <laughs> I did. But as you know, sometimes that for children, that, that if that's all they know, right. mm -hmm. it, I don't think it was necessarily a lot harder for them to learn speaking Hungarian or to speak Hungarian to me than it would have been Romanian. For other reasons, their proficiency in Romanian would be higher than it is in Romanian. And we'll probably get to that uh, mm -hmm. in a little while here. So have they learned any Romanian? Yes. Uh, and as you both know, when we, you know, talk about knowing a language and learning a language, that it's a continuum. And where is it? I speak the language. I know the language. They they know some Romanian. And they actually grew up overhearing Romanian because I would speak to my parents on Skype ever since they were little. They would try to communicate with their Romanian granddad. And we oftentimes visited uh, home. and so. For us, going home was not, wow, finally being immersed into the Hungarian language and culture. Uh -huh. No, Hungarian, their minority language, their second language, 
was also a minority language for me, a language in which I never actually really had any schooling. Mm -hmm. And then when going home, we still went to a country where that language is just a minority language. Mm -hmm. um, so they heard Hungarian, but they also heard a lot of Romanian. Many of my fr friends are Romanian, so we would hang out with them and they would just overhear. So for the longest time, it was really, I was just labeling it overhearing and, you know, learning little phrases. But um, five years ago, we um, were fortunate enough to be able to spend one year in Romania. I was a visiting scholar at my alma mater, and I did some research on multilingualism, and we enrolled the children uh, in Hungarian schools. Um, they were in third grade, first grade, and the youngest in preschool. So the schooling was in Hungarian, but they're German and Hungarian schools. So the non-Romanian schools are usually the language of, and some English actually, English instruction too. But every school that's not in Romanian has Romanian, not as a foreign language, but as a state language. So they took Romanian also as a state language. And being there, they picked up more Romanian. This is an interesting topic for me because I went into this year with the expectation that they'll come back knowing some Romanian. I actually even had an abstract submitted to a conference about their L3 acquisition of Romanian. And it was, I don't want to call it a disappointing experience, but it was different than what I expected. Mm -hmm. They were not immersed in the language. It was partial immersion because in the house, we only spoke Hungarian and English. At school, it was mainly Hungarian. Right. A lot of our friends spoke Hungarian. If they were Romanians, they knew English. Mm. They were not forced to work on their Romanian. Yeah. Wow. So their passive knowledge, especially my daughter. So Sarah, when you asked about if my husband and I use Romanian as a secret language, no chance around my daughter. Okay. She, she actually understands uh, wow. a lot of Romanian, which she's is the, great. She's the eldest. Yes. Wow. Well, I mean, you mentioned that Hungarian was even a minority language for you when you didn't get any schooling. So I'm just trying to think, how did you build the support to immerse your children in Hungarian in the U.S.? Or, I mean, it did work out for you, even though you were not aiming for Hungarian, you were aiming for <laughs> Romanian. But like in general, how has that been for you? Because it must be a lot of pressure on you and very tiring to be the only source of input for your children. What is that like in the U.S. and in general for you? It's hard. So raising children bilingually in the U.S. is harder than in many other parts of the world. And with a language that for which there is no support in the community, yes, the pressure is all on me. I would say that because of my background, because I grew up bilingually, because I have a background in linguistics, I teach languages, I'm really committed to bilingualism, I'm an advocate for it, and I think it's really wonderful to be able to pass on one's heritage to their children. I was able to do it, I guess, successfully. <laughs> Maybe other people who have a lot more support in the community may uh, make some more compromises. Oh, yeah, okay, we can speak English also in the house, or sometimes we'll switch back and forth between English and my our uh, minority language. And for me, it was there is no English between mommy and the children. Mm. And I think that was one big reason why, like, they for the children, it's like 
it has never been an option for them to address me in English. Right. What about things that people use these days, like uh, TV shows, books? How do you find all these resources to, to get your kids immersed in, in, in Hungarian? Books and videos have not been hard to find because okay. we, we travel back home, always bring back books. And oftentimes I would even read to them, grab an English book and just read it to them, paraphrasing or word for word translation. Uh, every communication was in Hungarian. YouTube videos, lots of YouTube videos. So for us, uh, Winnie the Pooh is Mitimot school and Strawberry Shortcake Eperke. I think it, it was weird for them if they heard those in English. Right. Lots of resources on the internet in Hungarian. Yeah, the internet is amazing. And it's nice that you're a professional translator and interpreter because when I try to like translate a book into Spanish on the spot, it does not go well. <laughs> yeah, I have to do that now sometimes from French into Spanish. And it's the words my son is just getting a whole bunch of books from the library here. And man, I'm just like, I can't read them to you because I don't know. So I'll just make stuff up. And then he'll double check with my husband. He's like, that's not what mommy said it was in this book. And I'm like, I'm in trouble. But I, I, I would agree with Lauren that your background definitely helps you because I'm not able to do that on this spot as, as well as I would like. I never even actually thought about that, that my background in translation and, and interpreting was helping me kind of read on the spot in another language. But I really took a lot of liberty. I just, you know, paraphrased, simplified, left things out. Sure. Yeah. So do your kids know how to read and write in Hungarian? Um, yes, no. So they know how to read and write now correctly? No. F reading fluently? No. Compared to their English, obviously. And we have done some work with my two oldest ones the, in Romania. They learned and did reading and writing in school. So definitely. And we read together. I taught them to read uh, in Hungarian before we went. The youngest one was four. Mm -hmm. four or five he was in preschool he he knew how to read in English but then I didn't add at that time Hungarian later I remember when we came back even though I never sat down with him to teach him how to read in Hungarian because he he was already a fluent reader in English and I just asked him hey can you try to read this in Hungarian he did pretty well mm -hmm. and so they they can all read and sometimes they need to be reminded a little bit of consonant clusters what sounds they make and everything then there's interference uh and as a linguist i love hearing those interferences because i analyze them and i think about oh okay so this is what's happening in their brain and all that but uh interference is normal writing we haven't actively worked at it i thought it was always cute if they uh, have to write a note to uh, their parents at school my children usually write that in Hungarian, and I get a note in Hungarian. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. I love it. Aww. Would you say that the year you spend in Romania helped them in this regard, writing, reading? For sure. Yeah. I, I even remember my son who was in first grade. Hungarian spelling is quite complicated, too, and there were times when he knew, you know, whether an I has an accent and it's a long E sound or not. And I really wasn't aware of those rules in spelling and everything. So he, there were some things that he, he knew better how to spell than me. Absolutely. I, so I didn't collect data uh, on their Hungarian, 
but obviously it helped with their Hungarian reading, writing, and speaking. Right. And I looked at all the passages. So I, I, I always try to take an additive uh, approach to uh, multilingualism and look at what is there, not a deficiency view. So mm -hmm. I try to celebrate everything that was there, not, oh, well, you don't know how to do this and don't know how to do right. that. That's great. For sure. Well, I, I love that you mentioned before that you don't see bilingualism as a categorical kind of variable. It's more like a continuum. Because uh, we all know that it's really hard <laughs> to even just to become a functional bilingual. So I wanted to ask you, um, in your personal and professional experience, what, what do we need to do as parents to ensure if we want to, if that's our ultimate goal, that our children are functional bilingual so they can communicate, potentially read and write in the, in, in the language, the heritage language? I, I would just say I would just keep it as functional. And I don't know what you understand by functional. Perhaps you want to like talk about what that means for you. Uh, I also wanted to actually kind of turn that question back to you and ask you what you mean by functional. Yeah, that's a good um, question, Lauren. What what would do you what do you think about when you when you hear functional? I think for me, functional means someone who can communicate effectively. It doesn't have to be perfectly, but effectively in a language. And I think that implies some basic reading and writing skills. They don't have to be very advanced, but like they can make use of reading and writing to communicate as well. Those two mediums. I'd imagine, yeah our kids being able to interact in Spanish society without us, like talk to their grandparents without us to interpret for them, go to a store without us to interpret for them. Right. Yes. So um, I would say a few things, uh, but I, I need to preface with everybody's story is so different. So it's hard to give blanket advice and just uh, overgeneralize what needs to be done because what works for one family may not right. work for another one but in the process of language development what I think is needed is one strong association whether it's with one parent whether it's with the home whether it's with a nanny or school mm -hmm. it shouldn't be what language is developing there should be some time spent only in that language uh, if there's always mixing with English in our case, since we live in the U.S., that language will not develop to a satisfactory point. Mm -hmm. Now, later on, I, I'm, I love code switching, so I'm not against it. We use it, we do it. But while language is developing, I would say there is time needed spent in the minority language, and there needs to be this some association with someone or a certain context. And sometimes we need to let children work at it a little bit. When they don't know something, we as parents shouldn't just give them the word in the language, maybe have them think about it, paraphrase. If we tell them the word, have them repeat it. So work a little bit at it. Mm -hmm. And um, then later on, once the language is developed to a certain point, during the maintenance phase. What I'm gonna say is mostly anecdotal. I haven't read any research studies, but I also use it a little bit with my children. I read that it's important to spend 30% of the time in the minority language for it to be maintained. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an interesting number. And our brains can handle, you know, 10 languages, but if uh, they're all developing and each language gets very little, 
ultimately you're not going to reach a certain proficiency le uh, level in many of those languages. So this 30% is an interesting, it's probably not smack, you know, 30% and always, but it's a rough estimate. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like numbers, even though they're not 100% mm -hmm. accurate. I like that. Yeah, they, they give you a little guide. Uh, and then reading and writing, if I can address that. Um, I think it's wonderful to be able to read and write in the language. Uh, but I think for many uh, people, it becomes different level. It is a different commitment, different effort. Mm -hmm. If you have support, like for me, I went to German school. Uh, and that was super easy for me to learn German that way, how to read and write in German. But if there's no support and one parent is fighting really hard even to maintain the conversation level of the language, adding reading and writing is great, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's necessary. I, I mean, I think I'm a good example. I never attended Hungarian school. Growing up, I read books in Romanian, in German, but I never really read any literature, any books for fun in Hungarian. My Hungarian reading came when I had children and I read baby books to them. Now, my writing, I can write. Is it super correct and sophisticated? No, but I would say I'm proficient in the language and... Yeah, yeah. Your, your mother was able to pass down her heritage. You have an emotional connection to the, to the language. You can speak to your grandparents, whoever you need to. Sure. I think that's what matters. That yeah, this is really helpful. And I really uh, appreciate that uh, you chose that language because it's, you know, close to your heart. And that's the one I, the, you wanted to pass on, even if that meant that your kids might not communicate very effectively with your dad. I mean, I think that's a really hard choice because it's really, it's complicated at many levels, I think. Mm -hmm. I was going to say these conversations with mothers are so interesting because mothering is such an emotional experience. And it's so it's so involved. You're passing down your culture, and and so the language you choose to do that in is very emotional. Can, let's talk a little bit about your kids' uh, feelings about their bilingualism. How do they feel about being bilingual and about each language they speak? Yes. So generally, my children are very uh, have a very positive attitude about uh, bilingualism and multilingualism. They're uh, proud to be speaking a language uh, other than English. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I grew up bilingually. I have a background in linguistics and language acquisition. And they grew up being immersed in this uh, environment. Speaking several languages is good, is a positive thing. And uh, again, coming back to the ad having an additive approach, it's an asset, it's a value. Uh, how fortunate they are to be able to uh, grow up speaking another language rather than, you know, being something that they need to be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. Did your children ever refuse to speak Hungarian or had a negative attitude at some point, a specific situation in which this happened, or has it always been positive overall? Um, the one example I can give when my daughter, she was younger than two, and my second was born. I uh, just because new baby in the house, I was recovering and spent less time with her. It was at the critical time when her language was emerging. I noticed, and it wasn't refusal as in rebellious and defiant attitude. Uh, when we were together, just us, 
I noticed that she was she was having a hard time actually speaking, communicating in Hungarian. She was lacking the vocabulary mm-hmm. and was using a lot of English because she she didn't know the words in Hungarian. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling actually uh, sad and thinking, wow, my big dream about raising children bilingually is stopping before it even started. But then what I did is one day I just decided to be, again, very intentional and purposeful about it and not let it just go in that direction. I expected, and I I told her, mommy is only going to respond to you if you speak Hungarian to me. And when she didn't know how to say something, I told her how to say it, had her repeat it. So we paid a little bit more attention to it. And I really think it really took that one day. She was more careful, uh, attentive to use Hungarian and not completely just a free-for-all. I just use whatever language I can. So that was one instance I can think of. Other than that, I can't, I never had any refusal or I have a negative attitude about it. I don't want to speak Hungarian. They're, they've been comfortable speaking Hungarian to me around their friends. What we often do is um, if they ask me something or I tell them something, if it's, if we see intrigued looks like, what did she just say? Or what did she ask you? We we repeat in English for the other people what has been said. Right. But the one-on-one communication, regardless who is around us, is Hungarian. Okay. And Sarah, coming back to your question, I have to do that. Yeah. I think other people speaking languages that uh, have more support in the community don't have to. But for me, uh, I feel like that was a necessity. Yeah, I feel like you really represent my husband. He knows that French will be hard to get in the U.S. where we live, and he is very strict about it. He's never used English, and he always addresses our children in French, no matter who's around. And if they're bothered by it, he'll just like translate, but he will never switch. He's never used a single word of English. And I, I appreciate you mentioning this and being honest about how strict you need to be sometimes to protect that minority language. And that commitment at a young age too. I remember when they're first starting to speak, you just want them to communicate however they can. So it's really hard to put rules on that. Um, But yeah, it needs to be, you know, set those norms in place early on, makes it easier later on, I suppose. For the most part, it was like the two languages, Hungarian and English, were developing very nicely. Hungarian with me, English with my husband and other people in the house. And they, like you know, they would look at one person and knew exactly what language to use. I remember nannies and preschool teachers being concerned that they would suddenly start speaking Hungarian. Like, no, they won't unless they want to mess with you. I remember my daughter picking uh, books from the bookshelf in Hungarian or Romanian and giving it to our nanny. And having this look like, I know what I'm doing. I didn't pick the wrong book. I'm just testing you. <laughs> I love that. I do want to say what you mentioned before is that uh, you noticed how you were not spending enough time with her for her to pick up that, to learn that vocabulary that she needed to communicate with you. And I just want to reiterate that because that has happened to me too. There's been like certain periods of times in which I've worked a lot. And I noticed straight away that my children don't have the book up or they're not as used to speaking Spanish. 
anymore. And they use more, you know, more words that are close to French or they make more, more mistakes. And for me, it's hard because I noticed straight away, oh, mommy hasn't been as present and therefore your Spanish has suffered a little bit. It might just be temporary. But I know instead of feeling sad, I'm just like, okay, that's fine. This is an easy fix. We'll spend more time. We'll do more things. And then it just kind of picks up again within a few days. And I think that's something that is rough for mothers because you, you know, your absence automatically translates as there's no input. And then your children, you know, are not speaking as fluently or they're making more mistakes. It doesn't matter. But then, like you said, it's an easy fix. You, you uh, notice what happens and you just address it. And then it just doesn't mean it's going to be the end of the journey. Correct. But easy fix for us who pick up on those things. And that I think is the problem that other people who don't have a background in linguistics and bilingualism and are not informed would not. And I think that's why many uh, people may end up in a different situation than uh, what they expected. And they don't know why. And for us, it's easy to pinpoint. Well, you know, remember when your kid came home from preschool? I mean, he or she was fluent in let's say Spanish, you know, spoke only Spanish or spoke better Spanish than English and then came home and, you know, the kid's language is English and he wants to speak English with you and you respond, well, that's the first mistake. Don't accept English if you want to hold on to the minority language. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It's hard. It's hard. At Victoria's daycare yesterday, there's a new student who's Spanish speaking at home and my husband said, oh, you know, Victoria speaks Spanish. She can help her. And the mom said, well, I don't want her to speak Spanish at school. Oh. Yeah. It's just, it's hard for people to not yeah. project their own insecurities onto their, their children, I think. Yeah. And even something as basic, uh, like me right now, I'm in France and I'm thinking this is a great opportunity for me to improve my French. I've noticed every single hour I spent doing this is a single hour that I'm not spending with my children as well so there's always like a trade-off and it sounds like oh my god you're so stressed out over this but it is important I notice like I need to make that time to be with them to be present so that my sometimes my personal goals you know can affect how how much time I spend I spend with them and I thought that was like the first time I noticed this and I was like damn (laughs) This is such a simple thing, but it has such a significant effect on on yes. my overarching goal, you know, like of raising them trilingual in our case. So, yeah. Yes, because also we're not just talking about teaching a language to someone. It's this is our family. And so there we want to have connections with our children that are not only about right. how well do you speak this language? Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how how would you describe your children's language dominance right now? Um, I think to no one's surprise, English is their dominant language. Um, It hasn't always been. So for a very short time, I would say um, with the youngest and the oldest, I can't remember necessarily there being a big difference between English and Hungarian when they were little. But with my middle son, uh, up until the age of two, uh, his Hungarian seemed to be stronger than his English. But then he started preschool, and that changed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And between so, each other, they speak English? Um, normally, yes. 
when uh, we had, uh, there were times when they were younger, when they uh, spoke Hungarian and there's especially one sum summer when they spoke a lot of Hungarian to each other, but it didn't come from them. It was encouraged by me. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a little experiment that I ran. Um, and other than that, sometimes I catch them, uh, I hear them speak Hungarian to each other. And that they often do when maybe they want to say something to each other that maybe other people shouldn't understand. My uh, two oldest were uh, last year doing PE together. Six, seven, eighth grade were doing PE together. And sometimes we're on the, they were on the same team, sometimes on the opposite team. So they told me that sometimes they communicated in Hungarian to help each other during PE. I love that. Yeah, that's wonderful. We've been trying to tell Victoria that Gonzalo, who's her little brother, who's one, doesn't speak English, but I don't know how well that's going to work long term. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we know that you edited and contributed to a wonderful volume called Racing by Children Bilingually in the U.S., and we definitely recommend this vo volume to our readers. Uh, but we wanted to know what made you choose this topic and what particular techniques or even narr narratives did you learn from this experience that you weren't already familiar with? Sure. So my desire to edit this volume came from going through the experience of raising children bilingually, but specifically in the United States, because I grew up with Hungarian, my uh, minority language. But there was a lot of support in the community, and that was so different here. So definitely, uh, it came as a passion project. I could identify with it, and I have had a uh, heart for sharing uh, my experiences and other people's experiences with raising children bilingually in the U.S. with others in um, desire to help them. Mm -hmm. It is hard. As we all know, it is really hard. And what I noticed that many parents um, who expected one thing and maybe they didn't reach uh, the, let's just say, success level that they expected, they were carrying a lot of shame and guilt around it. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that. And what I thought uh, is that what about if these parents um, get not those, you know, for some, it may be a little too late. But what if parents uh, are exposed to more information about it earlier on, and they avoid making some mistakes that are easy to make? And so what I noticed is that really there are kind of windows and doors that, you know, you can open or close. It is so easy to fall off from a nice, uh, solid track of bilingualism to fall into monolingualism. It is very easy. Mm -hmm. And then also keeping it, like there, you, there are sometimes just little things you need to do for staying on the bilingualism track. But the issue, the key is being aware of what those things are, little milestones, little things that need to be done or need to be avoided. Do you have a specific example, maybe? Um, so that would be one example that I mentioned, too, about when children start preschool and all the other children uh, start speak like speak English around them and they bring English into the home. So 
accepting English, like, and it, nothing wrong with it. So every family makes their own choice. I'm not advocating everybody needs to speak another language. Everybody needs to speak their native language. It, it, it's their choice. But if they want to, if people want to pass on their heritage, then if the children come home and speak English, and especially if it's a language that has little support in the community, that would be one thing one shouldn't do. No, you just have to keep uh, the lines of communication in the minority language between parent and child. Um, and then, yeah, that transition yeah. to majority language schooling is is an important one. Yes. And then the middle school years. I remember reading this uh, interesting thing about uh, middle school age. Uh, and this applies to monolingual children too, is the invisible audience. Children are so aware of their peers, even in their own home when the peers are not present, they monitor the way they speak and everything. And so outside the home when they're around their peers, uh, they have a heightened level of awareness mm -hmm. and they don't wanna be different. And so that's another thing when sometimes I think uh, parents kind of lose the battle of on bilingualism because then maybe children will refuse to speak this language they don't want to be different they just want to fit in yeah so we need to come and support them they need more awareness more support yeah and recognition that that's a real struggle that they're going through absolutely yeah. right yeah. it is just it is harder than it looks just that's all i have to say here i never thought this would be such a horror journey and, and it has been and I guess it will be but it's completely worth it and I encourage everybody out there who's thinking about this that they should try and give it a shot but it is hard <laughs> yes um any other overarching bits of wisdom or tips that you have for parents listening to this and I and I do want to hear the one about encouraging the, the siblings to speak to each other in the minority language. I'm really curious about that. <laughs> yes, I, I start answering that question and we can come back then to tips. So it was uh, the year when my daughter started first grade mm -hmm. in an English speaking school. And so the time she was away from me increased and I noticed that her Hungarian was getting worse just compared to what it used to be and also in comparison to her siblings. And during those times, I was I kept coming across this 30% in the minority language. And I honestly sat down and kind of did a rough, rough calculation. And she was somewhere between 20, 25%. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, and I say this jokingly, and probably it's in the book. I thought, okay, I'm not going to wake her up at 2 a.m. every night and say, okay, we need to get in another half an hour of Hungarian to reach the 30%. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I thought, let's see what else, where else can we get Hungarian from? And it dawned on me, duh, my other children, I mean, they all speak Hungarian. And just because they've been only speaking Hungarian to me, but there is a they are a resource. Mm -hmm. So let's use that. And I asked them, hey, how about if you uh, speak Hungarian to each other? Coming back to the question of how natural or unnatural it feels to speak a language, for them, it was not natural to speak Hungarian to each other. And that's why I had to come up with an incentive. And I told them, hey, if I hear you speak mostly Hungarian to each other for a week, we'll go out and get ice cream. 
And it wasn't as easy as that. Uh, they would switch back to English because that was more natural. But I came up also with a system to draw their attention to it, to catch themselves, to go back to Hungarian. And sure enough, within a week, there was more Hungarian. And then that was not enough. We did another week. And I, the, my incentive, we can call it a bribe. I told them, hey, if for the next week you speak Hungarian to each other, we'll go and I'll get you each a toy. And they had a positive attitude about it and they tried. And truly, uh, we started the summer with maybe 80% communication in English, 20% Hungarian among the children. Mm -hmm. By the end of the summer, it was flipped, mostly Hungarian, uh, much less English. That's great. I love it. I think my son will work really well with Bride, so why not? What about tips? And that is hard just because, as you both know, and just from knowing other families, everybody has a unique situation. So very often what works for one person is not necessarily the best advice for another. Code switching. It may work just well doing a lot of code switching for other families and for others. We may say, no, you need to avoid that for a while. Um, traveling to the country, being immersed in the language, again, it may be necessary to some, not for others. Um, knowing that it is hard is, I think, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, and coming across hurdles, again, just being aware of that is important because it could be that some people just give up because they think, oh, this is not working. I can't do it. No, no, no. Keep going. Find uh, ways around it. Realistic expectations and intentionality, I think. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. And a lot of the things that we talked about today are for us, it's, yeah, of course, there are certain things that we may take for granted in our own experiences raising our children uh, bilingually or trilingually, but so many people are not in that situation. And then coming back to the little doors and windows that can close or open easily, I would also recommend for people who have no background in uh, bilingualism or no experience with it or have no experience with language teaching, uh, they should read about it talk to other people and other people people's experiences and even have a conversation with someone who has a background in bilingualism and get someone's support in their journey uh, to my multilingualism and that support can be personalized because sometimes they may read a blanket hey you need to do this and they try that but it doesn't work for their family because their family situation is so unique so sometimes a personalized plan is the key mm -hmm. right it can be hard too, I think, because parents sometimes do reach out for support um, to a school or a pediatrician and get unhelpful advice. The school tells them to abandon the minority language or that their child isn't learning English fast enough or something. So that's true. Someone so sometimes specifically with knowledge in bilingualism, I'd say. Yes. Wonderful. Um, is there anything else that you wanted us to ask you or wanted to talk about? No, this has been really great. A lot of great questions. And uh, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Yeah, it was really great to to talk to you. Very interesting. Yeah, we, your background is fascinating. And your attitude is the right one for sure. So I'm pretty sure your children are really lucky to 
to be raised in such a wonderful household with such a positive attitude and multiple languages around. I'm pretty sure in the future they will they will be happy that this was the case for them. Thank you. We are going to leave it there today. Thanks again, Julia, so much for chatting with us. It was wonderful to get to know you. Um, listeners, we'll be back soon with another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Hasta luego. Ciao. ever have questions for us or questions about the podcast go to home and our website at www.multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions make sure to follow us on facebook and instagram and stay tuned for another episode of multilingual mamas